So on this episode, I've got former CEO of Saracens, Harlequins, Melbourne Storm, wonderful bloke, very good at contextualising the nuances, the important part, the commercialisation of the game of rugby union and league. It's the powerful, the wonderful Mark Evans. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on Cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on Cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. So it's time to show me age now. So we we were <laughs> purely not through an advertising model, sure. Yeah, genuinely, humbly, gosh, humbly, it's changed my life. So the rugby pod was on a whim. Mm. I listened to podcasts. So I was at Saracens and travelled from the Cotswolds to Saracens because I didn't think I was going to be playing. So I kind of had one eye on retirement, missed mm. another job in the Cotswolds, mm-hmm. and I was listening to podcasts last season. At Saracens, my mate of a mate approached me and said, oh, there's a guy called Fred who does the rugby pod. He's thinking about getting some ex-players or yourself and Mm. an ex-player to do a podcast. Because I was doing a series for Saracens called Don't Mess With Jim, where I was interviewing the lads. You wouldn't have seen it. It was on YouTube, Saris TV. Okay. But they gave me an opportunity to do kind of content. So I was interviewing Marrow, Pitchside, Billy. I was like, Billy, who'd win between the Vunapolas and the Tuolangis in a street fight, as in just tongue-in-cheek, taking the piss. And it kind of took off a little bit in terms of, like, some people were seeing it, they were like, like, there's a thing here. Mm -hmm. Jim, you're quite good in front of camera, which was never going to be the way. I was never going to be in the media market, ever. Interesting. So the guy approached me and said, look, would you be keen to do a podcast? We've got Andy Goode. I said, well, I know Goody. I I, I knew him from Leicester. Did you know? You didn't know him well. His mum was my teacher at school. Oh, well, I knew she was a teacher. I knew knew his mum was a teacher. She was fantastic for me. Yeah. Because I had a bit of a shit upbringing. I lived in a bit of a rough area. Right. Um, and she was great. With Goody, we got approached to do it. We took a risk. As you know, rugby is quite a serious sport in terms of... Conservative with a small c. Especially in the media echelons mm. and also the demographic of consumers. I'm cut from a different cloth just from where I'm from and the way I act, the way I was as a player, and also the way that I consume media. Right. I listened to podcasts as I was driving back to my point. Didn't really read the Times, the Telegraph, the Guardian, other papers are obviously out there, how you consume rugby. Mm. How the general population of rugby fans would consume rugby. Now, as a player, I found it very frustrating that you'd get reported on after and you'd be graded. All these things that you know would annoy a young player coming through who thought he was probably better than he was and grossly underpaid, even though I wasn't. A lot of people say I was over, overly paid. Opportunity to do a podcast. I said, look, if we're going to do it, I want it shackles off. We can have fun. We can take risks and we can be us. Mm. It isn't going to be sanitized or anything like that in terms of you can and can't say. So we just did it. We just turned on the mics. We had a crack. We connected. And for many of Goody's flaws, Shrewd is a funny guy mm, and he's yeah, also he's a well-traveled guy. I tell you what, fucking world-class player as well in terms of... In his, in his, in his style, yes. In his style. I mean, it, it, and a naturally gifted player. Mm. A bit of a cult legend. You know, what he did at Newcastle, went back there. And the stars align, Mark, because I'm at Saracens at this point. 
and I'm playing every week. Mm. I weren't meant to be. George mm. Cruz, Maratoji, starting locks. I was third choice. Alistair Hargreaves was going through his injury and ended up retiring. So the stars line, I'm playing. I'm playing in quarterfinals, on the bench for the semis yeah. and the finals, whilst doing a podcast, just retired from Scotland, told some stories around the World Cup in 2015 that made the front pages of the Scottish papers. And I could see when I was doing I felt a bit embarrassed when I was walking around and going to rugby clubs and seeing people in the media to the point where I turned up at Gloucester. I won't say who. A media guy comes up to me. Oh, here, here they are. One of the clowns from the podcast, as in taking the piss. And I was like, is he right? Anyway, we accelerate now to where we are six years on. Mm. And humbly, we've got the it's biggest... Six years? Six years. Gosh. And Spotify, to back to your question, so Spotify have now licensed us. So we don't need I to worry yeah. about advertising. And it's changed my life in terms of, one, being able to sit and chat to people. But this is the add-on. Because I feel now I am established, humbly. You can broaden that a bit. I think it needs to. And that's where now I feel really proud of what we've, you know, what I've been through with the evolution, taking risks, being a bit silly. But there comes a point where, not a, a line in the sand, will always do the rugby pod, but it needs to grow. It's I need to you use... It's a platform as well, hasn't it? Yeah, I think it's great. And, and, and I do understand the snobbishness about some of the broadsheet media about rugby. It drives me... Well, there's a whole lot of stuff about rugby, which I am absolutely besotted with. Drives me nuts. Drives me absolutely bonkers. I just... It's so small. Drives me bananas why it's so small still. It's and such a the, brilliant game. And it's the same. As in, what I mean, you could look at the Times, you could, and I do a, a column for the Times. Yeah. You know, and I feel it's important to... And that's partly because that. it's in a broadsheet context. So if you look at the way rugby's reported, it gets very little in the mirror or the sun or the mail. But there's not, there's not much in the non-broadsheet mid-market and we're not on free to be we're not on free to air mm. so don't criticize people who are trying to grow the damn the market because the market's too damn small well you just answered the question then about what this is this is an evolution and an add-on to lad banter yeah and taking people into the changing rooms and actually finding a way love, yeah because no one had ever done it and and, and it's there and now there's and more podcasts and we'll carry on doing mm. that but there needs to be an evolution there needs to be a voice that says actually how does the game look what does it look like going forward how do we consume that they're not going to read the newspapers so we're doing a podcast today with Mark Evans who we were at an event a few weeks ago and I loved how you contextualized the lay of the land in rugby quickly mm. because it, it, it because you had to because yeah. we had an hour also the humor in which you did it with and then delving a bit deeper and actually bringing your name up to a few people i said i'm doing a podcast i've got uh, ben gulliver i'm speaking to kelly brown i've got mark evans mark evans people that have never met you do you want to hear some of the things that yeah, they threw? go on then <laughs> pioneer innovator people laughed when they said a funny guy so having someone here who has done what you've done in the game but can contextualise it and also put a different spin to be, this is how it is, this is your opinion, and not that your opinion's right, but your standing in the game and what you've done in the game gives you a platform to talk about it. Mm. Because from my opinion, looking at rugby, and I flip-flop because that's the kind of guy I am. I'm still young, you know, and I'm learning around, one, how to contextualise talking about it. Mm Mm-hmm understanding the upper echelons of commercialization, money. If it was me, I'd be like, pay the lads as much as they want to get paid. Don't do what they did to Saracens. Let the sugar daddies come in. Sorry, Nigel. Let the the money men come in and play less games, which I know you agree with. Mm. Player welfare being at the forefront, jobs are good. But as we know, the, the commercialization, which we can probably start about now, is shot to pieces. And I know that you, you know, you've done a few interviews on this and I'll ask you this question. Mm. What is the lay of land of rugby at the minute commercially? Because why would you, like the new Saracens Consortium have, throwing 36 million or 32 million at the club, why would anyone invest in rugby now? Well, I wouldn't, Agree. if I'm honest. Uh, but, and yet you, you can't avoid the fact that there are a number of people and organisations, CBC being the most high profile, but Silver Lake in, in New Zealand and others who have been looking around, I may well be wrong. 
Okay, I mean, I, I, I may well be wrong. And I suppose my, my position is a, para, is a paradoxical one. Do I think rugby could be far larger than it currently is? God, yes. And, and I say that because I've said that for 40 years. It drives me nuts. And I don't, oh, well, I do understand, but it, I find it very frustrating why rugby union and to, to a degree rugby league, which is a sport I've worked in and love as well, are relative minnows when you look at the whole sporting landscape. And somebody once said, rugby union is a game for small countries and minorities. And there, there, there is something in that. You look around and see, well, where are the countries where rugby union has a significant role in the sporting sort of pantheon of, of each country? It's a pretty small list. And the countries where it's dominant, New Zealand, 5 million people. Wales, well, you you could have a very interesting long debate about whether it's still dominant in Wales, but it's still significant, culturally very important. Three million people. Ireland. Ireland, where it is not the dominant sport. It's made huge strides, but, I mean, it is still, if you look at all the data, you know, football is still the most popular sport in Ireland. Yeah, even though, even though, uh, if you go to Belfast or Dublin every weekend, there are boatloads and boatloads of people going to Manchester, Liverpool and Glasgow to watch football. When I lived in Northern Ireland, I stopped at a petrol station as a young lad and someone said to me, Rangers or Celtic, Man United or Liverpool, I just said Cove City. Yeah, quite right. Yeah, (laughs) Tottenham. So Ireland's done really well, but it's not the dominant sport. The largest country in Europe without a professional soccer league, which is one of the reasons why rugby has done so well. It was an empty market. There was no professional sport in Dublin, particularly between September and February. And, and Leinster filled that gap. But there are hardly any gaps left anywhere around the world now. In Well, certainly in the developed world. You look at the biggest rugby market in the world, it's it's France. It's about, hmm, yeah, look, you've got to be careful with some statistics. But between 20 and 25 million people in France live in an area, draw a line from La Rochelle down to Lyon, where rugby is the dominant sport, apart from Marseille, which is not a rugby town. It's the dominant sport. Now Bordeaux is back because we lost Bordeaux for a while and we got Montpellier, which we never used to have. I say we, I mean the sport. That is the largest market in the world for rugby union. And it's still not the biggest sport in France. It's not as big as football. It's the reason why, of course, a couple of things flow from that. It's the reason why, on the whole, the French League will always pay higher. It's a, it's a, it's a fool's errand to chase the French League until you can grow your own market. They can pay their players more at the moment because their broadcast revenues are higher. It's as simple It's as simple as that. Now, the answer to that is, A, not many elite players leave the English League to go to France. There are one or two exceptions. It doesn't happen very often. And the other thing is, the way to respond to that, to say, well, we need to grow the sport in this country. We need to, and I say, I mean England. You need to grow the sport in England. We need to increase the broadcast figures. We need to increase the digital footprint. We need to improve the attendances. Some of the attendances at certain clubs have not grown for the best part of a decade. It's not just to say, well, we'll find another rich fella and get him to pump a few million in and we'll, we'll finance the wages that way. That's one bit of it. The other bit of it is why Japan's so important. Because Japan's got 120 million people. Rugby is by no means the dominant sport. The two dominant sports are baseball and um, football. But football never used to be. The J-League, remember Gary Lineker, Grampus I, 8? I know the J-League. Uh, Arsene, I know, I know Arsene Wenger. Yeah, Tom it, Bayer. It, yes. There. I spent quite a bit of Japan, time in Japan around the rugby circles when I was over in Perth a couple of years back working for GRR and Western Force. That is my big hope. It's going to take a little while, but there's a big country where Union might might, it's not done yet, might actually get a huge presence. That would be a, a, a real step forward. Everyone talks about the United States. I mean, I'm, people have been talking about the United States for 30 years. I still think we are a long, long way. A long way. And why is that then? Because that's a really interesting model. I mean, at Rugby Pass mm. as well, a company that I'm involved mm. in, we do a lot with the MLR. Yes. We know there's been a lot of changes. There seems to be, not from a salary perspective, more from an ownership perspective and an appetite, mm. a shitload of money. Yeah, oh, there is. There is. But... We're all right then. No, we're not. <laughs> and that's right. That, because I'll take an example from the same country, but a different sport, to illustrate why I still think it's going to be a long road. I'm old enough, I'm afraid, to remember the New York Cosmos. 
in the 1970s. Football. Yeah. The league that was set up in the United States. It attracted, at the time, the two highest-profile players in the world, Pelé and Franz Beckenbauer, both played for the game. They were all over everything. They were the, It was an incredibly sexy story. It, they were all over it. The league collapsed. It didn't work. It took a World Cup in 1990. We look back now and say, well, of course it worked. Well, I can remember, as that was coming out, people were not absolutely sure it would work. Although they had a huge advantage that rugby doesn't have, such a multiracial country and many of the people who live in that country, their background and their heritage is in countries where football is the national sport. Mm -hmm. We don't have that. Okay. However, what they do have going for them or why I don't think we should ever give up on the United States is that a, they don't mind leagues failing. They almost see it as a, well, that's just the way it is that you have to, you have to keep trying and, and, and you're not necessarily going to get it right first time. And I would make a comparison between a sport in America, a new sport, a relatively new sport in America and rugby union that does not reflect well on us. But in 1995-96, two new leagues emerged. One was called Major League Soccer in the States and the other was called Premiership Rugby, which I accept had been around since 87, but went pro 96-97. I was at Saracens at the time. I was head coach. Two leagues could not be set up more differently in, in lots of ways. Um, MLS was closed, so there's no promotion of relegation. Premier Rugby wasn't. Major League Soccer had a, had a collective bargaining agreement from the get-go with the players. We still don't. It was a franchise model with a lot of independent governance with the commissioner, which we don't have. We try this model that will never, ever work, where the clubs govern themselves. And it, 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 the conflicts are ludicrous, and it won't work. Well... It might work, but it's going to take an awful lot more money in the process. And time. And time. So where are we? 25 years on. We're not a young league anymore in this country, the Premiership. 25 years on, there are 32 clubs in the MLS. They've been down exactly the same amount of time as we have. We're still at 12. All right, 13. And then a ludicrous thing, if we decide to put a fourth club within 10 miles of the same road, the North Circuit is going to get very, very, very crowded. Which club? If Ealing come up, you've got Saracens, Ealing, London Irish Harlequins, and you can throw, tw- I think it's 12 miles between one another. So we're going to be quite happy, apparently. I think it's madness to put four out of our 14 clubs within 10 miles of each other. I think it's absolutely bonkers. Nothing against Ealing. Don't know the guy. Don't know. It just doesn't make any sense from a, from a growth point of view. You're you not want Leeds, don't you? Grow. I'm, no, I, actually, I'm not sure who I want. Leeds has been shown... Or Yorkshire. We gave up on Yorkshire, in my view. People going about, oh, the opportunity, uh, we're getting onto a real rift. I'm trying to dial down because promotion and relegation is one of a number of issues that need to come in together. And and we're not very bad at this in rugby. We tend to fixate on one thing. And and then, even then, though, so a, a closed league, I believe in a closed league with expansion. That's what I believe in. I think that I look around the world. And nearly all the most successful codes and the most successful leagues, with the exception of football, and we'll come back to why football's the exception, but all the other sports, basketball, AFL, NFL, rugby league, the NRL in Australia, they are all have got closed leagues that expand over time and they grow their size. I'm the last person, this is the paradox, I'm the last person who wants to keep 12 clubs playing professional rugby union at a high level because that's all we've ever had. I think that's nonsense. However, at one and the same time, I don't want to expand for the sake of it when we're already losing £50 million a year, when we've got 12 clubs. We've got to grow the market. We've got to grow the audience. If you can grow the market and grow the audience, you can grow the number of clubs that way round, not oh, well, let's give it a go here, let's give it a go there. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me. So when you mean close the leagues off, you mean no relegation effectively, no promotion. Yeah, I and do. some of the stuff that I've read that you've said around this mm. is you give it, what, 10 years, eight years uh, in, the, in that model? I've never put a time frame on it because my view is this, is that the most successful leagues align all the stakeholders. So they align the owners to the players, to the clubs. The size of the league should, in my view, be determined largely by the size of the revenues that are generated. 
and the players should have a fixed percentage of those revenues that are generated because that way everybody has got a vested interest in growing the sport and growing the league. And at some point, it's interesting, the NRL are just about to do it. They're just going to a 17th team. They've got an underprovided marketplace in Brisbane. Brisbane Broncos, who are the biggest team, have had a massive advantage for decades. They're the only team in a 2 million strong market where rugby league's the number one sport. I know we're flip-flopping, yeah. but in the NRL, yeah. which, again, watching it, it looks phenomenal. Great, great, great competition. Is that commercially viable? Oh, God, yeah. It is? Yeah. You see all the tops. I was an owner. I was an owner. I was an owner in the in the league, uh, and uh, part. I, I, I'd stress I didn't in a big percentage of the club, but I owned a, a reasonable percentage, mm. which we've since exited, and we all made money. So that's the model that you can kind of base it on. Is you've seen it in rugby. I know, albeit rugby league. league. Look, it's not. I don't base it just on that one league. That would be silly. But yes, I have my personal experience and i hate that phrase lived experience right it's true it's true i've worked in and owned in a league where if you run your club quite well you will make money you won't make it a lot of money you'll plow it all back and you think well why would people do that why would people take over a sports club well some of them are owned by members of course and that's that's slightly different but if some of them are privately owned well why would you do that why would you take a club over Get it to profitability, which most of them are. Not all of them, but quite a lot of them. Put the money back into the club. What, what, why, why would you do that? You haven't made any money. Because for an owner, the value is in the asset value. It's can I buy this club for 50 million and sell it for 100? When people say to me, oh, I look at rugby union in this country. Well, it's up to the owners. They're all rich guys and, and you know, it's their risk. I totally agree with that. But when people then say, oh, they're just greedy, or that I, I see this, you see this online all the time, it makes me laugh and angry, depending on how I'm feeling at a particular point in time. I can't see anybody so far in 25 years who's bought a club for X and sold it for Y, whereby Y is a larger number. It, I, I can't see one. And then we've had a number of people come into our sport, and we've been incredibly fortunate. People like Andrew Bransaw, people like Brian Kennedy, people like David Thompson. Not only have they funded it, through several years, they've lost money when they sold it and they've often had to almost give it away pay and get less than what they paid for it in the first place. Now, I don't think in the long run, unless you believe there's an inexhaustible supply of people who are willing to do that, and I might be wrong, there may be. I just don't think there are, so I don't think that model has got any kind of longevity. My other problem with it is this. If hardly any club makes a profit, it's very, very hard to get clubs to invest in growth. I keep coming back to this growth thing, and I know I'm slightly obsessed with it. If you're going to grow, you have to invest. And I mean invest in, I don't mean invest in players' salaries. I mean invest in, because Alan Sugar was right. It is the prune juice effect. He, he was absolutely right. But at least in football, people can actually put some money in and then make, make some money on the asset value. There are lots of examples. Doug Ellis at Villa, the Edwards family at, at, at Man United. There, there are lots of examples of people who've gone in, bought a club, bankrolled it for a number of years and, and sold out and, and made their money on the asset value. Why is that? Well, because the sport has got bigger whilst they've been owning the club. My argument is we've had 25 years and have we grown? Yeah, we have. The revenues are up four times higher than they were at the turn of the century. So forget the two or three years to start with, when we were just starting. But you get to about 2000 and compare the revenues then to where they are now and pre-COVID. So take 2019. And this is all in the public domain. I'm not sort of breaking any confidences. This is all in public accounts. You can just go and go and look it up if you're that sad like me. We've grown about four times, quadrupled our revenues. That's not bad. It's not stratospheric, but over 20 years, that's not a bad effort. I mean, I think that compounds a, a fairly decent return. But during that time, and this is why I go to people who say, I say to people who are often here saying, oh, we've just got to grow the revenues, grow the revenues. I said, oh, we've grown the revenues. We're bringing in four times as much as we brought in a generation ago. But in the mid-2000s, and I know I was running Quinns at the time, but the whole league was losing about £2 million collectively, all 12 clubs. You can, again, you can go and look it up. 
and I and, and before anyone says who's got, you know, I am simplifying profit. Of course, I am. And I've yeah, taken out, do. I've do. taken out extraneous costs, and I've taken out all that kind of stuff that are you know one-off items. So I've tried to make it as fair as and, and reasonable as I can. But as a league, twelve, we were losing about two million pound in 2019. Revenues have gone up 3.5 times because a bit had gone up before 2000 to 2004. So let's say it's gone up three times since 2004. But the losses have gone from two million to fifty million. So when people say we just need to keep growing revenues, I say just growing revenues on its own has not done it. In fact, the gap between revenues and costs has got bigger. What makes you think that if we don't make some changes to things on the cost and governance side, that pattern won't go on for another twenty-five years? And then all you're doing is you're looking for people who tend to be men, of course, on the whole, well, up to this point entirely, with deeper and deeper pockets. Maybe there are enough of them about. I would just like to see the sport put on a firmer footing because the point I didn't finish earlier, and I have a tendency to do this, is that if you're making a loss, it's very hard to get clubs to invest because they're just about keeping the lights on. To make payroll every month... And you're still losing money trying to persuade then somebody to invest in a long-term marketing campaign or into their digital presence or all the other things you have to do is infinitely more difficult than if each club is making a small, reasonable return, but it can then reinvest into growth. We, in my view, have got to get into that virtuous circle whereby players get a fair share and they are invested in growing those revenues so that their wages go up. But they also accept that if, we, if those revenues go down, they get a share of a, they get the same percentage of a smaller amount. And, and I've even got a sort of, you look around the world, and I was involved in a, preparing for a, a CBA, collective bond agreement back in the NRL, around about 2016, around about then. And I think there were 85 items to be negotiated. It took a year. And I wasn't there for the whole process. I, I helped to start it and try and frame what we're going to negotiate and all that. And there are 85 issues. In America, you know, the NBA CBA is something like 500 pages long. They take forever, but they last for five, seven, ten years. That's why baseball's going to have a strike this year because theirs has run out and they haven't renegotiated really a new one. So there's going to be a lockout. The owners are going to lock the players out. But it comes down to two big things, and they're linked. What percentage of what they call player-generated revenues? So I won't bore you the people listening with what that means but basically the money that's made by the game not all of it because some of the things like if you own a hotel like wasps that shouldn't go in that's got nothing to do with the game but you know ticket revenue broadcast merchandise all that that goes in right what is it whatever million it is the players should get a percentage of that and that effectively becomes a salary cap and we were saying when we were what do we want well we want we think 27 percent we think 27% is about right. That leaves enough for grassroots, because it was the governing body as well, leaves enough for grassroots, investment, and yet the players are getting a fair return. The players union came in and said, we want 29%. And guess what? We finished at 28 And at the same time, you have the second big thing is, all right, what's the grant to the clubs? Because the clubs then say, great, you've negotiated what we're going to have to pay out to the players as a percentage of what's being earned by the game, so the middle and all the clubs, fine. Well, what's our distribution? What's our central distribution, we call it? They just call it the grant. What's the grant? And the argument then is, well, is it 120% of the player's share, or is it 125, or is it 130? And so you have all these different stakeholders negotiating for how you carve it up, and then they put it in a box for five years or 10 years, depending on when the next broadcast deal is. And so what you have then is, if you now run your club well, and the salary cap's incredibly hard to break, I've got to tell you how hard that is to break. <laughs> we could go on, why is it so different to the one we've got? Well, it's, trust me, it's very different. Very, very different. But that as well, so there's no one thing, I keep saying to people, there's no one magic bullet, silver bullet, that's going to fix this. Promotion and relegation on its own, getting rid of it will not fix this, but you need it. Reforming the salary cap so it's much, much more difficult to evade will not fix this, but you need it. 
a collective bargaining agreement with the Players Association will not on its own fix it, but you need it. And all those things are interlinked. I'm trying to get across the idea that it's not enough just to have a salary cap. It's got to be the right type of cap and it's got to be structured well and it's got to fit in with all those other things that we talked about, about not having payers being underpaid. I'm way, way, way more concerned about what we do to players in the championship, and I think it's a disgrace to the sport that we both love, than I am worried about bringing down the overall payments in the premiership so it becomes in line with what we're generating, and then we can all gen- we can all concentrate on growing. So with what you know mm. and what you've experienced, again, there's no point talking about the NRO when it comes to player values. It's a different sport. Mm. What level, knowing the finances in the game mm. and where we are now, coming out of COVID, if you can say that we're coming out of COVID, that a player should be paid minimum in a squad? And then what do you think the maximum should be for yeah. a semi-run run draw or uh, a Maru I, Atoji? I, I, think, I think the minimum is around about 40 grand. And that's for if you're in the if you're in the salary cap squad. I mean, there'll be there'll be youngsters that will always. You know, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about I'm talking about your squad that you have to declare. Like you have to declare for the Heineken Cup. This is our squad. This is what our salary cap applies to. These players. Let's say it's 38 of them. I think the minimum salary should be around about. And I haven't done the sums on this. And it's gonna. Of course, now I'm going to go and do this properly, right? But this is top of my head stuff. But more from being a director of rugby yeah, and a I, coach. Yeah, and... I've been a long way. I'm. A, I haven't been in the Premiership for ten years. So with the with the individual salaries, I'm a little out of touch. Because I say but forty if, grand is nothing to be a professional rugby player. Well, if, I say if, that you're, if you're not in the team, right? And it, and you're 21 years old, and you're the third choice fly half. 40 grand for it on a two-year contract is fine because actually if you go if you think of it like this let's say let's say the cap's 5 million but with no marquees and no academy and no no injury clause you could you can actually just do the maths and say okay so divide it into 38 into 5 million and and, and what does that come to i don't know it's about 100 and i'm just doing this in my head 117 yeah it's about 130 something like that okay that's about your average mm. now I personally don't like a maximum salary. I think I want to give the club, I think that's part of the skill. I'd let the clubs decide how they allocated those 30 salaries, but the lowest one can't be lower than 40 grand. But on the maximum one, when you hear that a semi round rounder is on a million, which I or, don't know whether that's true or not. Or Piertel. We know, well, we kind of know that Piertel's on a million. That's, We've heard. That's certainly been bandied about. And like you said, when you hear stuff, it's generally correct, even if it's 900 grand, mm. even if it's 800 mm. grand. Do you think a player of that quality should be getting paid that? Because I do. Right. And, okay. and, the, and the reason I do, and again, this is something that I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on, mm. is if you're a Bristol fan and you know that Semi Ramrandra is playing, you'll probably play, pay 40 quid to go and watch him. Okay. Because you know that he's playing. So therefore, that is the football model, isn't it, in terms of how they consign players like Ronaldo goes back to Man United and they pay a ridiculous ridiculous amount of money and you know that you're going to get that money back one because people are going to tune in to watch him if, if there's a subscription which i don't know if there is but they're going to buy his shirt or they're going to do anything that they can to buy a 200 quid ticket or whatever it is at man united that you probably have to wait two years to get and they'll probably be gone anyway so do you see what my point i do and again let me just kind of carry on where i see things mm-hmm. maru Otoji, in terms of growing the game and the demographic of people that someone like that or a marcus smith would pull in to keep them at your club and everything that comes with that player, both from a social media, which is arguably superficial, but we also know that has value in terms of brand value, both for the player, individual and the club, then surely paying him more money for them reasons is a reason to do it in terms of growing the game's popularity for the younger generation of people that are going to want to come and watch rugby matches. Because the game, I think, has to change in terms of how it looks and how slow and how mundane it can potentially oh, be. Let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah, well, but in, so, in a minute. Yes, so, I take so, your that, point. so that question in terms of like yeah. the value yeah. of players yeah. and individuals isn't necessarily about their value as a rugby player, but a value as their brand. I understand the argument, but I think it's the wrong way round. And I'll tell you for why. Because I've seen this over, it's the advantage of being old. I remember when in 1996, 97, we bought Francois Pinard, Michael Liner, and Philippe Seller. We assumed, and I did as well, 
Custody right. had as well? No, no. He was two or three years later. Oh, okay. Right. But they were the big three. We already I don't, already got Kieran Bracken and um, Paddy Johns and the Wallace brothers and whatever. We go, we won the cup and got pipped by a point from another superstar team with Tuigamara and Wilkinson and Pat Lamb up in Newcastle. And, and we assumed, and I did too, and I learned a lot from this, that bringing in what I considered at the time to be three of the most famous players in the world, and they were, and they were great, great people, the crowds would just flock. Well, they didn't. What made people flock to Saracens, and they did in, the, in, the, in that 98 season, the, the season after, was a guy called Peter Deacon who understood marketing and he understood pricing and he understood promotion. And I learned a whole, an awful lot from him. Unfortunately, you know, passed away you know, not that many years afterwards, to be honest. Great loss to the game. And I remember learning that then. This is not about star power because actually you get caught in that sort of our game small, so the stars aren't that big. And another example, I look at Johnny Wilkinson at Newcastle. Probably the biggest crossover star the game's yet produced. Still, I don't think, certainly in this country. Absolutely. Because he was a gorgeous man as well. Didn't really move the dial at he Kingston Park. No, hold on. But why didn't it? Why everyone, you know, because the game in that part of the country, it's not one of the stronger areas. Okay. And just bringing in high profile names will. Not necessarily, I don't think. I don't think it's very little evidence that that moves the dial. I think it's perfectly okay if a club chooses. Let's say we'll work on the numbers we've been working on. Let's say the, the cap's five million. If someone wants to spend a million pound on one player, that's entirely up to them. We, we did at Melbourne, right? Albeit on a smaller squad, right? But let's say in union with 30, 38, you might say, all right, if you want to put somebody on 800,000 pounds. Well, actually, we were in dollars, so of course it's a lot more than we were paying, yeah. £800,000, that's still a, a pretty decent salary. You use the term worth. Well, I challenge the whole concept of worth. Unless you can show me, and I don't know anyone who has ever shown me that yet, that bringing in this player at a premium of, let's say, 400 pay him eight, he really could have got someone quite similar, maybe not quite as good for four. He's paying a premium of four. Show me where the extra 400000 is coming from. Net of costs of sale, by the way, not just revenue, net revenue, not gross. I'll go along with it. I still think they need to be in the cap. My point is this. If caps and limited squads right, are so damaging to player earnings, I'd say have a look at basketball because they've got all that. Have a look at American football because they've got all that. Have a look at AFL in Australia because they've got all those things. And their player salaries have gone up. And not just for the odd one, not just for the odd outlier. Their player salaries have gone up consistently without generating huge losses at club level because they've got the things that, that, that there's this idea that you bring in these things and it will dampen down players' salaries. I just don't accept it. It might do in the short run for a few, but in the long run... It will grow the sport and grow the revenues and the players who are on a fixed percentage of a growing revenue base will do really well. That's my argument. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube. Car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there, just in case I changed. 
my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. Well, the other issue that we have alongside that is trying to align, and we'll get onto it, the global calendar because oh. how do you, but, but 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 with the idea and the model that you're saying mm. which i think is a great model mm. it'd be near on impossible because you've got the autumn nations and you've got the six nations yeah. that lie yeah. in the middle yeah. of the season along with another competition in the european cup yeah the only way around it is each of those because the southern hemisphere have a different problem they don't have enough product right go to australia they just don't play enough games australia definitely don't right south africa Quite difficult. To, there's so much change there at the moment. Quite hard to see what how that's going to play out. And New Zealand don't play enough games unless you're the All Blacks, and they basically have a different model where it's all they, about the All Blacks. The All Blacks generate all the money, and, it, and then but their distribution is oh yeah, but they've got a CBA, Jim, and they've got a salary cap, and they've got a tiered system, and they've got a percentage of central revenues going to the players. All so, those so things. So do they have it right? No, I think their central revenue percentage is a little bit too high. They're at 36. Okay. I think they should be more at 33. But I'm quibbling now. I think close for, to being for right. a small country, right, which look, needs to maximize its assets and can only get a certain number of people into the grounds. I mean, it's, it's just a small country, albeit rugby mad. I think they're pretty well run. Yes. There's his brand value, though, isn't it? Global brand yeah, value, and that, which they know. You, you, which they do know. But nevertheless, they, they brought in things for the whole of their elite end of their sport that make an awful lot of sense. They do. It's a lot better than our arrangements at the moment. I'm still optimistic, you know, that we might get there. Summer rugby. No. You shot me down. No, I did. I did. I did. Only because I think the market's so much more difficult. The, the only way to sort the schedule out, and this is quite a big ask, but it's the only way the rest of it will just fill up. It'll just fill up, fill up, fill up. And this is from an English perspective, which is not the whole story. Each of the three competitions, or each of the three, but Europe, Premiership, and International have got to play, have got to take a cut, play fewer games. But not that many fewer. I think you've almost one or two weekends. You need, you need I've, I've done the work. You need about five weekends back. Okay? Get rid of the Premiership Cup. Get rid of the Premiership Shield. We haven't got time into what I do with that in terms of what, how I, you reinvigorate the championship, which you need. All I would say about it is, Every professional sport needs a functioning second tier. It's the pathway. Uh, it's the pathway. It's not a commercial thing. So you have to divert resources from the international and the premiership game into the championship because without it, the international game and the, cha and the premiership will be weaker over Absolutely. time. Right? It's a question of how you do it, not whether you do it. So coming back to the premiership and the, and the, the season structure, you need about five weekends back. And if you did that... There is a way of restructuring the English stroke European season whereby you only lose your players for a couple of weeks in the autumn. And I do mean a couple and you play without them. Then you can get the premiership finished before the six nations. You then play the six nations and then play playoffs. I'd make the playoffs slightly longer and create like almost a competition. And then you play Europe in a block. And if everybody gave up a bit, in terms of a weekend, and that means no fourth international in the autumn, and Heineken Cup has to take fewer weekends than nine, and I know it's on eight this year, and that's a step in the right direction. And the Premiership has to get away from this idea that 
just because you've got 12 teams in the league, you have to play 22 games. And if you have 14, you have to play 26. It's nonsense. It's not the number of teams in the league. It's how many games you ask them to play. Again, horrible. I'll use the example again, though. Melbourne. Um, No, I'll use NRL. Mm. There are 16 teams. You play 24 games. You don't play 30. You don't play 30. Because they recognise it's too many. Of course. So, so, so the, the only d- way we'll get a structured season with a better narrative, which has got the whole point of doing it, player welfare, commercial opportunity. At the moment, we're all fighting each other for a bigger slice of a pie that isn't big enough. Each of those levels, Europe, domestic and international, need to give up a weekend or two and restructure their competition and we'd have a much, much, much better product. But then, go on that model that you said, then it's a race to the finish line with the squad that you've got. Therefore, oh, yeah. the winner wins the league. And you win the- I, I like the playoffs. I think I do, it adds no, a commercial I, I value have, to the I league. I would still have a final series because there's real commercial value in there. There's okay. real commercial value so in there. So more for the commerciality of the game. Well, I never believed or proposed that the playoffs were there to compensate for the inadequacies of the regular season. I am an unashamed supporter of playoffs or finals football because it creates interests there are bigger events and you grow your sport you know there's a reason why the final four is a really huge thing in college but there's a reason why the super bowl club football rugby in this country needs big big events in big stadia and finals football or playoffs football is the easiest way to get there absolutely agree but summer rugby, no. Why? Too many competing big established sports events. Which ones? Uh, well, if you start, if let's assume we're talking June, July, August. I don't watch cricket, by the that way. That so. involves Test cricket, the hundred sitting right across, very successful sitting right across August, the start of the Premiership football season, August, the Gopen Golf, Wimbledon, global football tournaments every other year. Did you notice how little coverage the great Premiership final got this year? Why? The Euros were on. Mm. It got nothing. You can't, There are certain sport, there are certain events. The Olympics is one. Oh, and the Olympics every four years. Do you really want to go up against those sports? I don't mean summer in terms of it needs to be in June, July and August. What do you mean then? I mean... Maybe spring, maybe in better in better weather. My point being, did you see what Harlequins when they did a deep dive on their season last year? Yeah. Do you know what they come out with? Go on. They didn't play one game in the rain. Oh, I see. So I did know that. Yes, I did. They didn't play one game yeah. in the rain, and see, everyone's talking I, about how I'm, they play. I'm less. I, I went to Welford Road last weekend, and it was raining. Okay, we, you were a purist it, like me. I enjoyed no, no, it. but it was a good game. I enjoyed and there it. There's a lot of movement. Yeah, I, I thought it's it. a lot of movement. That the pitches are so much better now, Jim. I mean, you, I, I totally accept that. Back in the day, my day, even my after, day, yeah, you know, there were some shocking pitches around. You used to go to certain grounds and think this is just going to be a slugfest. You, how the hell do you play on this? And uh, look, some teams did try, but a lot didn't. It's not like that anymore. Also, I think there are lots of things we could do to improve. I'm going to use the word, although I do cringe a bit. There's a lot we could do to check to improve the product without giving up some of our areas where we have built real value. So the Six Nations is a huge. You can't move the Six Nations much. You move a little bit. I don't think Why anyone not? wants to move that. But there's hardly any. There's hardly any competition. One of the reasons it's so strong. It's like the Cheltenham Festival. Cheltenham Festival. It's the start of spring. You know, Six Nations. It's the light in winter. You know, these things are important. Heritage and tradition. And repeatability are important. And I think we could do a pile of stuff to improve how the game looks and how appealing it is without having to resort to uprooting everything and sticking it in a different part of the year. My point being around the summer, one, I'm a dad. So I take my lad to rugby. He's had three, four games cancelled. Probably not that interested now. Oh, sorry. I might move the community game to the to, to the summer. Well, when I put it out on social media, that was at Raw because they've got cricket as well, well which is arguably yeah, the same demographic. Yeah, yeah. My point is being is around fan experience, both having been a player and I, if, if there was summer rugby, I would never have been a professional rugby player because I was shocking on hard grounds with a fast game. I made a living <laughs> with the piss wet, the wind and the mud. 
that is where that's yeah. why I am where I am now. But my point is is around the fan experience. Now I know there's a load of stuff around that. I know that you want to come in on it, but I commentate on the games. I'm standing there. I'm freezing. I'm looking at the fans. I'm looking at, and this is Edinburgh, right? Okay, it's different yeah, yeah, in Scotland. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking the game's hard enough to consume anyway. So you need to make it and experience a day out. That's why the sevens are successful. I went to the Hong Kong sevens. I didn't watch any of the rugby, but I love the Hong Kong sevens. Yeah, yeah. I want to go again. That's just a snapshot of it. So I'm thinking, right, during preseason at the Edinburgh match at the damn health stadium, whatever they want to call it now, you go there, you're having a few beers, you can smell the barbecue, there's music on, you want to go. You're happy to pay 20 quid or whatever it is. December, January, going into Feb, and there is it's, it's blistering it? wind. You, you're it, like, I ain't going. It, it, well, people still go to watch football in those conditions. And uh, taking an even more extreme example, doesn't seem to put the fans off in Chicago and Green Bay. I, I understand what you're saying with them sports, but you know, like, again, the experience, I don't know about the Chicago, I don't know too much about the NFL, but the football is so easy to consume. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's tribal. You're going for the tribalism and, and, yeah, and that's the atmosphere. Where I, you see, that's where I want rugby to get to. I, I, I want to get rugby closer to French club rugby than anything else, where it genuinely is tribal, or to a degree it's tribal. And... I think there's a lot we can still do with how the game is played and officiated and what it looks like before we have to start rooting up everything and just saying, well, we'll stick it in the summer. That's where everybody, it's so crowded for the broadcast. I mean, at the end of the day, rugby's like any other professional sport. You live and die by your broadcast revenue. You are up against some massive, massive broadcast beasts if you move it into the summer. Who needs to take over from a broadcast perspective? Because my point, again, being I commentate, I've done stuff for ITV, Premier Sports, mm. BT Sport, mm. Prime Video, aka Amazon. So I'm trying to get the kids <coughs> to watch the dad on TV. And this is just one part of it. Yeah. Me. Yeah, yeah. And my family trying to grow the game in my household and be like, your dad's still on TV. <laughs> Look, how do people now consume the game when you've got, you need Sky for the Lions, Channel 4, it had Channel 5, which is no longer there, which is a shame because I thought Dirders and Flats were class. BT Sport, Premier Sport, Prime Video. I mean, it is a mess, isn't it? Do you it, think anyone's going to come in? Do you think, is there conversations ongoing? Do I, do I think that we're going to get a vertical, you mean, like uh, Sky Cricket or Sky Golf? Of course. Or, um, one place to watch rugby. One place to watch rugby. In the UK. Ah, uh, in the UK. In the UK. Okay. Well, or, it, 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 let's even whittle it down. In England. In the prep. <laughs> Premiership rugby. I know that it's on BT Sport. But... What, I, what I would say about that is that this, in this stage of the sports development, I think it's really important. I fully accept this is not a, a, a position that everybody agrees with, even in, in the broadcasting world, and people who know a lot more about it than me. I still feel that it's really important that the Premiership in particular, which is my particular love, has a regular free-to-air presence and it has to be on that show, on that channel for quite a long period of time, not just for the odd year and then switch to somewhere else and then switch to somewhere else. We've got to get a platform that people can access without subscription. Now, you can't just have that because otherwise the finances of the games completely fall apart. But I think that if we are serious about growing the game, we need to find a partner and I do mean that genuinely, not just a broadcaster, a partner who has got some kind of subscription model who is prepared to also allow a reasonable number of the other games to be shown on a free-to-air platform. So I think it's quite interesting that during the pandemic, when we had all six games on, people got used to it and liked it. And now there's only three. There is a little bit of a backlash about that. And I understand, you know, production costs are not insignificant. And at the moment, we've got three on subscription and we've got nothing on free to air. So we're coming from a long way back. Before you even look at an, an interesting uh, sort of rugby vertical, I, I mean, Sky looked at it, obviously, uh, back in the day when they went on that vertical change and rugby didn't make the cut golf did f1 did cricket did and obviously football so that tells you something about where we are so i come back and i'm not trying to avoid the question here i'm not sure i've got a glib straightforward simple answer i'm not sure there is one what i do know is to get in a position where that might be a possibility 5 10 15 years down the line and you've got to have that sort of 
time frame, we need to grow the audience. And it's still no doubt if you have a regular free-to-air presence, you will grow your audience. That has been shown time and time and time again. Look at women's football this year, whose attendances in grounds are little short of woeful. And I don't apologize for saying that. It's a, it's a fact. Average attendance at women's Premier League is 2,200 people. Right? They are not jamming the turnstiles. But on BBC, they're getting over a million when they show. Look at the women's internationals on BBC, right? Uh, in, not in a great time slot. You know, that was a very, those were very respectable numbers. I know it's terribly old school, but the power of linear television has not been completely eroded in this rush to direct to consumer, pay so much and watch as much rugby as you like. We need more casual viewers. You, we need to get people who do watch the Six Nations because historically it's been on free-to-air and there's not much else on at that time of year to broaden out their rugby watching. And I think it's really difficult to see how you do that purely through digital or subscription. Let me ask around CVC. Yes. Because you're going to be well-placed to talk about this, but anyone, casually, even in the teams, think they are the saviours of this game. The money that they've put into the game and the equity that they've acquired... Yeah. A snapshot, yes or no, is it a game changer for rugby? Because what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing is they would not have invested the amount of money that they have if they didn't feel there was a viable commercial opportunity. And you've sold me the dream today to show me that there is a way that this game of rugby that has given us so much can be commercially viable and grow. I do think it can, yes. Whether the CBC investment in this part of the world is a game changer, I think probably. And actually, I think from CBC's point of view, it's probably a pretty decent move. The point I tend to make when, when asked about this, and I have been a number of times, is that I'm sure it was a pretty decent move by CBC. I wasn't, I'm still not convinced it was a great move or deal for the clubs. I felt they were in a position where it was very, very hard for them to turn down an offer of cash on the table, which effectively was simply pulling forward the revenues they were going to earn, you know, in, in that would, of the value that were already being created. Because let's not forget now that their central distribution, what we called earlier the grant, if you like, from the middle, has dropped by 27%, and it's dropped by 27% in perpetuity. But some of the clubs were so strapped for cash it was almost impossible for them to say, no, 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 that's not a very good long-term deal because they needed to keep the lights on. So we come back to the, we won't reiterate them, the points I was making earlier about having to restructure that whole club thing. What I do think CBC's role makes more likely is another point you've already raised. I do think they will bring significant pressure to bear and influence to bear and will try to persuade a restructuring of the of the schedules. I, I do think it's much more likely now with somebody, an organisation that has a has a an influence across a number of competitions, that it, it improves the likelihood of better coordination. I also think they will probably act as a force for change in terms of how the product is delivered and the types of experiences that are offered and the and the way in which it's. It's put in front of the customer. I think that will all improve. Is it a saviour? I, I, I try not to think in quite simplistic terms. I, I think they could make a really, and they will hope to because they want to make a return, I think they could be a, a, a very helpful factor in growing the sport. And, and, it, and we keep, whichever way we look at this, isn't it? Whatever issue we, come, we look at, we tend to come round to how do we grow the audience, be, be it on broadcast be it through digital or be it actually live in stadia because without that any sport is stuck if you can't grow your audience you're not gonna prosper mark thank you very much and we need to do a part two of course there's so much more that we didn't get through <laughs> mate if people aren't too terribly bored by this one they'll be happy to well if they aren't bored of this and they want to hear your voice. I don't think you've done it in an audio book, but I'm going to force you to do it. But you have got a book out, haven't you? So <laughs> oh, it's, been, it's been going on. It's been out for about two or three years now. Yeah, called um, 
unholy union when rugby collided with the modern world. And it's beautifully written, because it's not written by me. I collaborated with a guy called Mike Aylwin from The Guardian, who's a wonderful, wonderful writer. And uh, yeah, it was great fun. It's pretty wide ranging. You know, it's got concussion and drugs and it tries to look at things globally. It's got, yeah, well, I think it's a bit, some people have read it and said, geez, it's a bit nerdy. And I think it probably is. It was written for a rug. It wasn't written, I suppose, for a casual fan. It was written to try and at least get some ideas out and some suggestions into the sort of rugby business. And even at the end, we didn't want to have it sort of, you know, I hate these books that say, well, this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong and never actually say, well, what would you do then? You know, I, I don't, you know. So we did, we had a little go at the towards the end. Other than the things, some of the other things that we've talked about, like the CBAs and the salary caps and that, yeah, they're all in the book, but they're not. The five at the end was something like, I, I can't remember them all. One of them we've already got. One of them was to change the nationality regulations. That, that was one of the five recommendations at the end that stop player capture and allow players to play for people they're qualified for by birth or grandparents or whatever. It's kind of done. And that. that's, that's done. So then we've got four left. I say kind of, you see what <laughs> I've done there? Because yeah. there's more that can be done, but that's story. There is, there is more that can be done, but it's, it's a, it's a big shift. And mm. I'm, I'm a realist. I, I, I'm, I, no one's going to magic wand. It's not going to happen. Everything you want is going to happen. And you know, we're all never going to agree on everything that we want, but there's a lot more that can be done because, and I, I suppose my next one would be uh, if I wrote it again now, three years time, I'd probably push harder on the way the, the things in the way the game looks to the, to the customer. I, I, I think some of the stuff, there are too many stoppages. I get rid of the water boys. I treat injuries off the pitch. People go on about ball in play. I'm not so worried about ball in play. I'm much more interested in what I call flow. How, how, how often does the game get stopped? And for how long, you know, if, if people make a, uh, I, I'm even, I'm even tempted to ab- abolish the knock on the what I'm almost, I'm almost tempted. I'm not quite sure yet how I really think about this, but I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to get rid of the knock on as an offense. If you knock on, just play on. If you drop the ball, just play that on. Pick, is the, that, pick is it the, up. that is the French rugby fan in you, isn't it? Possibly. It could be. As you a part two, just, though. just play on. Part two. Uh, Mark, thank you very much. Pleasure. And someone Thanks did say pioneer to me when I spoke to them on the phone. And I think our listeners would probably agree that you're not shooting from the hip. These are proven things that you've been involved in uh, across the world. So it was an absolute pleasure. I could have spoke to you all day, but I'm going to have to read your book now. I couldn't get it on Amazon, though. Uh, sorry, I'll send you a copy. Yes, please do. <laughs> Signed copy. <laughs> Thanks very much. Dutch. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom and the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom and the Planet of the Apes enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. Where, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much.